Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word uh, that you've spoken and that in doing so you've revealed yourself clearly to us. Uh, I pray that you would fill all of our hearts with a great hope and assurance that comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Look, this week of lockdown has been a bit of a turn for the worst for me. Um, lockdown started to get to me and Sophie uh, and it's not just further restrictions, harder restrictions, not just longer restrictions that's doing it, but it's the implications of what this Delta strand COVID thing means uh, for our family. We're 27 weeks into pregnancy on Tuesday, which is exciting, but I don't know the health risks uh, that will be involved with having a newborn. I don't know what our baby will be exposed to. I don't know what the first years of its life will be like when there is no vaccine uh, for children. It's made me nervous in a way that I haven't been before, just last night actually, and it sucked a bit of hope out of me, if I'm going to be honest. And perhaps you've been feeling this way the whole time during COVID lockdown. You're like, oh, join the party, better late than never, but I'm just catching up. Now, hopelessness is a destructive force, isn't it? Ah, it's, it saps the life out of you. It pervades everything. Hopelessness is devastating. But real and solid hope dashes it to pieces. And the book of Ruth has been so timely because it is a book of great hope. As we finish our time in Ruth, uh, it's sad, but there's some massive moments of hope And it's not just hope for someone else, Boaz, Ruth, Naomi. No, this story was written for us. And whatever hope there is for the characters in this book, there's an even greater, superior hope for us tonight. And what more could we want in a time like this? This week, I need a little bit of this solid hope. A reason to smile, a cause for celebration. That's what I've been getting out of Ruth, and that's what I hope we get out of Ruth tonight. A solid hope from a solid assurance that God is powerfully in control of all things. This God is kind, he's loving, and he's working in every single detail of life for our good. So how are we going to get that hope tonight? Well, this book is like an ogre. It has many layers, and we're going to peel back those layers one at a time and see that God has written this for us so that we might have a hope of being redeemed and filled up to overflowing. Now, every narrative has an arc, and what I mean by that is it has a beginning, has some problems, has some series of events, and then a resolution that lands somewhere. And tonight, we arrive at that resolution. And we're going to see the mastery of this author that brings three arcs together in one resolution, this big bang. But there's actually three plus one arcs in this story and we need to consider all of them so let's get into them one at a time the first narrative arc is about Ruth and Boaz and this began last week with Jono uh, chapter 3 verse 1 Naomi hatched a plan to set up Ruth with a husband in Boaz Uh, she uh, Ruth deviated from the plan Jono showed us and she boldly proposed to Boaz at the threshing floor and he said he was keen and that's great but There was someone else, not someone else for him, someone else for Ruth, because there was someone who was a closer relative to Naomi than he was. 
and he had the right to marry Ruth before Boaz did. And so we're left with this cliffhanger. Um, who is going to marry Ruth? Who's Ruth going to marry? It's like the season finale before Bachelor or Farmer Wants a Wife or something. Is it this guy, the crowd favorite, Boaz, or is it going to be some guy that we haven't even met yet? And so look at the last verse of chapter 3, verse 18. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Boaz would not rest until Ruth had rest in a home. And so the author sets us up on the edge of our seat, ready for the season finale. And it's this moment of tension that we jump into for chapter 4. And I'm not sure if you noticed when it was being read during the reading or you're reading through the week, how determined Boaz is. He is a man on a mission. He goes straight to the town gate. He finds the other man. He assembles him along with all the elders of the town, tells them where to sit. You here, there, left, down a little bit. He sets up his stage and audience. And he makes his pitch in verse 3. You can read it. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. Then his words, I will redeem it, he said. No, Ruth and Boaz, you can't do this. It's a bit of a moment like that in the tension of the story, a bit of a breathe-in moment, tension's high. We're about to rebel and protest against this. But this is the Boaz show. He's in control. And did you notice the little detail that Boaz left out until now? Ruth. He left Ruth out of it, the Moabite. So he says in verse 5, cool, 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 cool. Oh, by the way, uh, when you get the land, it's not just the land, it's marriage to uh, Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow. In order to maintain the name of the dead with the property, it won't just all be yours, you know. And at this point, the other redeemer, he bows out. It's too risky for his own interests. That's verse 6. And We're left for a leave. Boaz wins the day. Boaz takes the other guy's shoe, as you do, and it's official. Boaz declares in front of everyone publicly his intention to redeem Elimelech's property for Naomi, and Naomi along with that, and to marry Ruth so the property can stay in the family. Now, Ruth and Boaz's ark, which began in 3 verse 1, finds its resolution in 4 verse 13. Have a look. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Yeah, how good. Ruth and Boaz, married at last, together. And a child, a son even. Someone who can give them great hope of a future, securing their future property, his inheritance. That is a satisfying ending to this romance, yeah? Or is it? Now, the romantics among us might feel a little dissatisfied with the whiplash. (laughs) Handbrake goes on, right? All of that happens, so much happens in a single verse. Have a look. Marriage, sex, nine months incubation, and a child, all in the space of 28 words. Come on, author. Don't you get it? 
This is a romance. How did he propose? Where's the royal wedding? Who was on the invite list? What was she wearing? Ah, none of that detail, just the facts of the matter. Now, why is that? Well, a nice ending to Boaz and Ruth's story, it brings some kind of satisfaction, some kind of comfort, some kind of hope. But like a romance that we watch develop over the episodes of a season on Netflix or something, it isn't our own. Whatever feel good it brings is fleeting. And so as much as we want to stop and celebrate the little things of Ruth and Boaz getting together, the author will not let us do that. Because there's more hope to come, and it's hope for us in the next arc. But before we move on to the second arc, two things. Dating, marriage. We love it. First thing, dating. There's lots to notice about the nobility of Boaz's character as a man. Think back to last week where this episode started. Uh, He doesn't take advantage of Ruth in the middle of the night. Uh, He doesn't even privately take her hand in marriage then and there, even though she offered it, even though he wanted to marry her. No, he goes to the one man who had the right before. He goes public, completely above board, and he gives this other man the opportunity that he wished he could take up himself. That's amazing, isn't it? That's amazing. He simultaneously wants to care for Ruth, wants what's best for her, actually wants her as his wife, yet he is frustratingly noble. He continues to put the rights of others in front of his own. What a jerk. And not only this, but while the one redeemer doesn't want to take on the offer because of the risk that it might take, financial risk or something, Boaz without a moment's hesitation, takes on all the risk, willingly, decisively, with great resolve, and publicly. Now, I've heard multiple male friends this week reflect that they've been really inspired and struck by Boaz's noble character in this book, inspired to be a man like Boaz. And it's a great thing to take out of this book, a book that men don't often deal deeply with, perhaps it's because of the romance, but men do engage, study Boaz, Be inspired to be like him. Model him as he foreshadows the perfect masculinity in Christ. And women, we've seen in previous chapters where it comes to the forefront more, but the same is true for Ruth. Be like Ruth. These two characters are noteworthy. The the author keeps holding them up again and again and again, drawing our attention to their godly character because we're meant to notice them. And we're meant to be inspired by them. And actually, all of this is an interesting commentary on some of the frustrations of dating life. Because not everyone sees the value of Ruth's noble character, do they? And you might feel like that in your own dating life. I work so hard to be the woman of God, the man of God that he has called me to be. He would be pleased. But I keep getting overlooked. It's useless. But Ruth's story screams out that godly character really is valuable. It is noticed by God. And it is noticed by the right kind of person. The other man, he's passed up the deal of a lifetime. He's a fool. But Boaz, whatever personal risk is involved in the transaction, he sees straight through it and he knows the value of noble character. 
He knows the words of Proverbs 31.10. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is, far, she is worth far more than rubies. And so blokes, um, honour noble character by giving your attention to the women of noble character around you. Don't be a schmuck who overlooks character and misses out. Be like Boaz, make a move, be decisive, put it all on the line. Don't be the reason that the good girls feel overlooked. And certainly, certainly don't be like the world which looks for external beauty above everything else and pressures women all over the place to give themselves to cheap dating tactics. Proverbs 31, beauty is fleeting. And yes, women naturally do the same. My instinct is that you do this a little bit better than blokes. However, there is a back door to this church, which is far too large. And it's where the late 20s and early 30s women, they're tempted to go out to find a good guy who will notice them and love them. And maybe you feel like this because you do feel like you've been overlooked for so long. And that, that is a painful experience. But I hope and trust that there are plenty of good guys here, when we're gathered here, guys of upstanding character. Don't miss out. Take some initiative, like Ruth. Maybe do it, not do it in the same way that she did. It's a little sketchy. But, you know, take control. Call the men to be men at EV night. And please don't be tempted to walk out of church and turn your back on following Jesus just to find a guy who can make you feel seen and make you laugh more than a guy he can. Proverbs 31, charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting. Trust me, I used to be beautiful. Now, the second thing, <laughs> marriage. Notice the order of what happens in the romance between Ruth and Boaz. Now, I trust you've already noticed uh, the beauty of their romance in the book. But first, Boaz and Ruth engage in three months of courtship. That's about how long the barley harvest goes for. They see each other in the workplace, they experience each other's character, and significantly, they're actually drawn to each other because of their character. Then, they consider marriage. Boaz makes a public declaration of his commitment to Ruth. They have a marriage ceremony. Then, they have sex. Then, they have a child. And this romance is textbook God's design for dating, marriage, sex, the lot. And it is beautiful. Something that this book won't let us not see. And that isn't a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. It's beautiful because God has made it beautiful. God's way has been proven time and time again across cultures, across history, and statistical analysis if you need it, that it is best it is best best for your chances of staying together best for your children best for your own security best for your own sex lives it is best because god created the world he created us he knows what works he knows what's best so hear this sex is for marriage Sex is best in the security of a publicly declared commitment through marriage. Do not give yourself to anyone who is offering anything less than that. Your body and soul is a lot to offer someone 
Sex is not just a glorified handshake. Do not give this up, your body and soul, lightly. And hear this also, marriage is for children. Hazy talked about this a few weeks ago, week one of school holidays. You should chase it up. It was really good. And one of the punchlines of that talk was that you can't have a marriage without the intention of having children. Intention. Yes, our world is broken and there are many more marriages than I bet you realise who are heartbroken because they want children and they're unable to. I'm not talking about these people. I'm not having a go at these people. They get it. They get God's good design and they want it. I'm talking about those people who think the decision to get married and the decision to have kids are just two completely separate decisions and either or is optional really. It's not the case. Don't get married unless you're open to having children. It's what God wants from your union. It's the way he's designed it. God has designed sex and marriage this way and he has our best in mind. And notice also that Ruth and Boaz's romance is not a modern romance. They didn't swipe right, then have sex, then decide whether they'd like to date based on that experience, then move in together, of course, then decide whether or not to have kids and, of course, buy a house, that makes sense, and then be left with like, oh, maybe, maybe not on marriage. What a gross comparison. What a foolish way to live. The modern romance is bizarre, back to front, twisted, distorted, evil. And it's the worst thing you could do to your romantic life for sure. It leaves people insecure, used, abused. It leaves families broken apart. And it leaves the next generation vulnerable to all sorts of abuse as well. It promises much and it delivers the opposite. Biblical sex and marriage isn't a bummer and an inconvenient truth that you sign on to for following Jesus. It is the way to live life to the full. That's enough on Ruth and Boaz's ark. Let's move on to the second narrative arc. It's about Naomi and her God. Now cast your minds back to the beginning of this book. You can flick there. Naomi's ark begins in 1 verse 5. Her husband and two sons have died. She was left vulnerable, empty, alone, without a hope, and in Moab of all places. Now take a look at how Naomi saw her situation in 1 verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi. She told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Yet in reality, it wasn't all bad for Naomi, because Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, was standing right next to her. And through Ruth, we would see that God would provide very much for Naomi through her and through Boaz's field. And so take a look at the turnaround, a chapter later, 2 verse 20. Naomi says, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to living in the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Naomi has a complete turnaround on the outlook of her life. She blesses Boaz for his kindness, but more importantly, she praises God for his kindness. She comes to realize that with Yahweh as her God, she has a hope of a future. She can be filled up once more. That is a significant moment for Naomi, significant. 
But it isn't the end of her story. Because look at what is said after Ruth gives birth. 4 verse 14. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who has this day not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He'll renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women, li the women living there said, Naomi has a son. Naomi has a son. That's profound, isn't it? The story goes beyond the marriage of Ruth and Boaz, beyond their child's birth even, to the implications of that child's birth. And the implications of that child's birth means great blessing and hope of a future for Naomi. The romance of Boaz, Boaz and Ruth doesn't find its significance in the grandeur of their own wedding ceremony, say, but instead their romance finds its significance in what it means for the mother-in-law. She has a son. In other words, Naomi has a future. She has an heir. She's being filled up. Naomi finds rest. It is a beautiful conclusion for Naomi's story, filled with hope. And so this second arc narrative, it sits over the first. And the first actually serves the second and finds its significance in the second. Because we are reading a romance about Ruth and Boaz, but it's not only that, it's so much more. It's a story of romance far grander between Naomi and her God, Yahweh. One big thing we see from this ark so clearly is God's grace to the undeserving. Naomi's story puts the spotlight on God and his grace for the undeserving. Naomi, who left the promised land, left God's people to search for greener pastures. Naomi, who turned bitter towards God, even though Ruth was standing right behind her. This Naomi, whose character was certainly not held up and exonerated like Ruth and Boaz's, this Naomi was made to be the pot at the end of the rainbow of God's blessings that just, and his kindness that just filled her up, filled her up, filled her up to overflowing. And her story is much like our own. You see, the book of Ruth needs a Naomi for it to be encouraging for us. The book of Ruth needs a Naomi for it to be encouraging for us. Without her, we'd probably just feel crushed and defeated by comparing ourselves to Ruth and Boaz. But no, we find hope in being compared to Naomi. Because we all, at one time or other, did not honour God as we ought. We searched for pleasure in other pastures. We turned away from him outside of his will. And like Naomi, we were left hopeless, vulnerable because of our sin and in need of a redeemer. Now like Naomi relied on Boaz to redeem her, we need to rely on Jesus to redeem us. I've got those words written in this Bible whenever I read this last. Naomi, unable to rescue herself from a situation, relies on Boaz, the guardian redeemer, as we do for Christ, who humbled himself and gave of himself, just like Boaz, who gave up much in costliness to himself to redeem Naomi. Uh, Jesus has given up the greatest price, his life, 
to redeem us and rescue us. Now those who repent, who turn back to God in Jesus, as Naomi turned back to Yahweh, back to Bethlehem, they are received with open arms and a rich inheritance of eternal life which will never perish, spoil or fade. This is what we learn from Naomi's life. We learn what it is like to have Yahweh as your God. It's not a cruel and oppressive existence. It's not a lonely one. God is not distant and aloof. To have Yahweh as your God is to tap into intimate relationship with your Creator, who is closely involved in the details of our lives, who knows nothing of evil and is only pure goodness, who loves without limit and who is powerful to save anyone who would come to him. This God redeemed Naomi, filled her up and gave her hope. And if you turn to him also, by putting your trust in Jesus, God would fill you up too. With abundance, grace, undeserved, of course. And if not now, certainly into eternity. Eternity, heaven, what is heaven? Think about that for a second. Um, we are finite, like a cup. God is infinite. And eternity goes on forever. A relationship with a God of pure goodness is like a cup overflowing with unlimited goodness forever. And just look at the abundance that God gave Naomi here. Verse 15. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. When Naomi was at her lowest, God gave her Ruth, the one who loves Naomi and who is better to her than seven sons. Now the significance of that might be lost on us because we think seven sons, what a nightmare, right? But seven sons in these days, you could not hope for a better blessing, a more fuller blessing from God for your family. Seven sons to provide. Seven sons to continue your name. Um, my mum went to North Korea once and they loved two things about her. They couldn't get over the fact that her name was Kim. And second, they couldn't get past the fact that she had three sons, right? Whoa, Kim, wife of Scott, three sons. These are the kinds of things they just kept saying. They couldn't believe it. Ruth is better than seven sons. Better than anything Naomi could have dreamed for herself. God loves to give abundant grace to the undeserving. But wait, because there's more. Keep reading from verse 16. Then Naomi took the child in her arms, cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, if you're fairly new to the Old Testament, you may just read those few names and think, oh, that's a good name for my kid one day, little Obed running around. But if you've been a Christian for a while and you've read your Old Testament, you'll recognize these names. And for you reading this, the, the floor of the depths of God's riches towards Naomi just falls away. Very cleverly, in a few short names, a few short words, the author gives us the plot twist. This is the penny drop moment. This is the aha moment. This is the whoa, step back moment. Because these names are famous names. And the most famous of them is David, the son of Jesse. The greatest king that ancient Israel ever saw. The best king at the best moment in Israel's history, their pinnacle as a nation, the glory days. That king. And so with these few words, the author blows our minds with God's generosity. 
Naomi is the great-great-grandmother of King David. She'll be remembered forever. She's gone down as legend. She's one of the greats now. The elders in verse 11 and 12 of this chapter, when they pray for blessing, had no idea how much God would delight to answer their prayer. But there's even more significance for the book of Ruth in these last few names, which leads us to the third ark, Israel and her God. The list of names at the end of the book are most significant when you look at where we all started. So come back a page to 1 verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. In week one, we saw that the time of the judges was the lowest point in Israel's history up till now. Israel were in this cycle of disobedience, which led to judgment. They spiraled further and further and further away from God and deeper and deeper and deeper into their sin and judgment. And that's where they were, stuck there. They deserved no blessing from God, only his judgment. But look what God did. Through this whole story of Naomi's life, in the time of the judges, when they were at their worst, he was all the while filling up his people, all of his people, the nation Israel. God, in his kindness, took his rebellious people, who were leaderless, without a king, spinning out of control in chaos, and worked in the small and seemingly insignificant life of Naomi to give them the best king that they would ever see. And so within three generations, God would scrape them up from rock bottom and put them at the highest high that they'll ever get to. Such is God's grace for the undeserving. And so this third ark is, is like the second, but it sits above it because we're drawn to see that Naomi's story of hope and being filled is a, redempt, is a redemptive parallel of an even greater redemption. God's redemption, his restoration and his glorification of Israel. And that is almost the purest picture of undeserved grace. And I say almost because there's an even more pure picture to come. We've seen the three narrative arcs and the author is amazing in the way that he draws them all together in a few short verses. But there is plus one more, plus one author, because, sorry, there's plus one author at work here. You see, there's one human author, masterful though he was, he longed to see how this would all fit together in God's story. And the other author, of course, is God. And he had an even greater resolution planned and written out before creation even. And so this plus one arc in the story is us and our God. You see, the New Testament brings an even greater significance to these names which close out the book of Ruth. So come to Matthew 1, and as you do, just notice how many pages you go through to get there. Matthew chapter 1, the first verse of the New Testament says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's genealogy delivers the ultimate punchline to the book of Ruth. All the while, God had you in mind. God had me in mind. All the events of Naomi's life 
were for our salvation in Jesus Christ. That is mind-blowing, boggling. Praise God. This means that the narrative arc of Ruth and Boaz, which served Naomi and her God, which served Israel and her God, all of those sit within the greatest arc of a story ever told. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the story of God's relentless love worked through the intimate details of thousands of years of human history, hundreds of different families, to send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, into our world, to be the king and the redeemer of all who would turn to him. And so let me quickly wrap up with four pieces of hope from all of this. First, in Jesus The book of Ruth shows us that God gives hope to the outcast. Like Ruth, think of her, the Moabite, the enemy of God, welcomed into a loving, hope-filled, rich relationship with God. And so too, for those who repent, just as she did, God welcomes us, who were enemies, just like Ruth, into relationship. This hope is for you if you consider yourself too far gone to be a part of God's people. You are never too far gone to turn to God in Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives a hope and a future for everyone and anyone who would turn to him. So do that. If you haven't already, do that by praying to God, asking for forgiveness in Jesus and Please let someone know, especially in these times. Let someone you know know. Let someone you've seen on screen know. Send an email. Whatever you can do, let someone know that that's what you're going to do. Second, in Jesus, the book of Ruth shows us that God gives hope to the undeserving. We've already seen this. Like the story of Naomi and Israel in the time of the judges of all times. So we all, undeserving though we are, are given hope of a great and solid inheritance by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone third in Jesus the book of Ruth shows us that God is for us God is sovereignly in control just as clearly as we can perceive the unseen God um, at work in the book of Ruth behind the scenes so too the redemption that we have in Jesus gives us a clarity of vision and an assurance that God is working in all things for our good. God's love in the cross of Jesus shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt that the unseen God has been working in every page of human history to save us for our good. And God's love in calling us to himself, letting us hear the gospel, bringing us to life in the spirit to be saved by Jesus, shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has been working in every moment and detail of our lives for our good. And God's promise to us of a future hope in the resurrection of Jesus shows us without a shadow of a doubt that God will continue to work in every moment and detail of our lives for our good. And so lastly, there is hope For our broken world. There is hope beyond lockdown. Do not despair. Don't let hopelessness get the upper hand. Find hope in God, the masterful author of all things, 
and of our salvation. Put your trust in Jesus day after day and find rest in his sovereign kindness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gospel, your action in history, your demonstration of love in Jesus, for your enemies, um, that you would pay such a price to redeem those who are running away from you and want nothing to do with you. Um, Father, I pray that you would make all of us repentant day in, day out and reliant upon the grace that we find in Jesus. And Father, please fill our hearts with hope hope of eternal life, hope of a future. And please, Father, uh, help us, give us, give us um, the ability to look back on our lives and see your kindness to us in many moments. And we pray all this in your Son's name. Amen.